I can wait another day Until I call you You've only got my heart on a string And everything a flutter But another lonely night Take forever We've only got each other to blame It's all the same to me, love Cause I know what I feel To be right No more lonely Hello again and welcome to I've Got a Beatles podcast with Dave and Chris. And we are uh, going to do something different today. A lot of people have, uh, in, in the time of our current administration and president, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the book 1984 by uh, George Orwell, but <laughs> we are going to take 1984 and look at it in a different kind of way. With all these anniversaries and celebrations of the Beatles, uh, we're always looking 50 years ago, 50 years ago. So, you know, we had the Sgt. Pepper stuff. We had the White Album. Uh, mm-hmm. This year we're going to have Abbey Road. And we we know already know so much about what happened during those Beatle years uh, that we thought it would be more interesting to pick a year that you don't normally think of as a an anniversary. So we picked also wanted to pick a year in which we were alive because sometimes we hear... Well, you, you know, second-generation fans don't know what it was like. And yeah. so uh, we picked the year 1984, and it was a year kind of setting things up. It's an interesting year because the 80s, as we've talked about in the past, were not kind to the Beatles for the most part. It started out terribly with John Lennon, well, even earlier with Paul McCartney and Wings breaking up because of his marijuana arrest and and trying to smuggle and then wings breaking up and then Lennon uh, and so they're kind of adrift after a while so yeah yeah we'd had you know you if you think about it Paul had some big success in the early 80s with tug of war Mm -hmm. uh, Worked with Michael Jackson Uh, George pretty much dropped out after gone tropo Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) Ringo was having a lot of uh, drinking problems and and just not really having any sort of artistic contribution. He was dropped by record labels. And so it's kind of a weird time. And so 1984, what we're going to look at today, and that first song that we heard was No More Lonely Nights from, again, a very, how would you describe it, a drift kind of project from Paul. Uh, yeah, my regards yeah. to Broad Street. Well, be, before we get into that, Dave, I, I was uh, uh, thinking maybe we'd talk uh, about, just to contextualize what was going on 
overall in music at yeah. the time in, in uh, the 1984. I was in 1984, 11 years old, and I was a a, a big fan. And I, I still to this day say that 82 through 85, a little bit into 86, is probably the most enjoyable uh, as far as listening to the top 40. Mm-hmm. Your your pop hits, your top forty hits, were generally pretty good, pretty interesting stuff. Major stars, you've got Prince, Madonna, uh, uh, Michael Jackson, yeah. Tears for Fears. Some people didn't like eighties music, pop music. I loved it. I, mm-hmm. I I would sit every morning. I would hope to get home from church <laughs> uh, by noon so that I could listen to the entire top forty. Oh, and then I take my little notebook out and I'd I'd rate all the top forty. Oh wow! And if I missed one, I'd be real ticked off. I'd yeah, be, damn, what's the name <laughs> of that damn song? Uh, so I was like uh, uh, a little crazy about it, I guess. I like but, that. Uh, well, no, no wonder we're doing a show like this. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there, there a few of these were uh, uh, some of those '80s hits mm-hmm. of the time. But what what was your take on on music back back in in the uh, the 80s. I was uh, actually 1984 was an important year because for me because it's the year I got into the Beatles. Uh, because before that, growing up, I was uh, I think I'm a year younger than you. Mostly, what I would listen to was classical music. Uh, 1984 was the 20th anniversary of the Beatles coming to America, so that's when we and we've told this story before, but that's when I really got into the Beatles. And our music teacher had each class sing. A couple of songs so mm-hmm. it was really an important year in terms of my interest in pop music and the Beatles but I was backwards in that way not only did I start with classical music but I didn't like 80s music until well after the 80s were over uh, so now I love it yeah and now I think back to I, I attach memories growing up and hearing these songs to them now uh, but at the time I wasn't really into it uh, but like you said I wanted to read from Rolling Stone, who called 1984 the greatest. What do they call it? Uh, Pop's greatest year. Yeah. And this this introduction really kind of says it all. From Prince to Madonna to Michael Jackson to Bruce Springsteen to Cyndi Lauper, 1984 was the year that stood tallest. New wave, R&B, hip hop, mascarid hard rock, and Weird <laughs> Al Yankovic all crossed paths on the charts while a post-Billy Jean MTV brought them into your living room. And then they go through the top 100 singles from that year, which we'll maybe mention. We already mentioned some of the people who were involved, but uh, I'm also with you that maybe it's nostalgia or something, but that early 80s period of being a kid and hearing a lot of those songs really still sticks with me, and I don't like the late 80s as much. Yeah, I, I really I think about eighty six it took a mm-hmm. turn and it turned mm-hmm. and turned and then by the end of the eighties we had like new kids on the block right, and that's, stuff like that yeah. and it was just like I, I couldn't I couldn't fathom what was going on <laughs> but if you you know dig up any pop hit like I, what's good to do is look at the top forty and like go down to like thirty eight and find one you haven't haven't ever mm. heard you know mm-hmm. and then the, and listen to the, some of those songs they're really great like yeah. uh really great interesting stuff deep in the charts mm-hmm. in the 80s so so that's the sort of world 
the the other thing just to say generally about music in the 80s which i think we all know this is that it, it switched away from guitar driven uh rock yeah. music you know uh, so much so but that by the end of the 80s it was sort of like rock is dead and i i famously yeah. remember a cover of spin magazine that said can Jesus Jones save rock? And I was like, what? <laughs> wow, we're really desperate. And I, yeah, I was like, man, you are really desperate. And I was like, are they even a rock band? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And of course, we know who saved rock. It, it was the uh, a one-two punch of Guns N' Roses. Yeah, yeah. Followed up by uh, Grunge Rock Grunge, and that's what uh, I was gonna say, Nirvana. Yeah. Mm-hmm, so, Nirvana. so the that that saved uh, uh, saved rock and sort of like '90s became. Mostly guitar driven and and yeah. hardly any synthesizers used. But so this area what we're talking about, I think it's important to say it just because of the a few things we're going to play here. Mm-hmm. Very very synthesizer driven beats and synthesizers. Yeah. And, and let's but even broadening it out too. As I mentioned that the '80s were bad to the Beatles for the most part. How about other classic rockers too? Think about like what were the Rolling Stones doing? In the early to mid eighties, uh, yeah. Not Bob Dylan. Where yeah. was Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan was doing Empire Burlesque, and then well, he started out with the Christian phase, uh, and then Empire Burlesque, and these kind of sort of dreadful, half dreadful albums that just yeah. went nowhere. It just yeah, not not great. And so then you've got people like Bruce Springsteen, who are the second generation, or John Mellencamp, who are, are rockers, but they're modernizing their sound in some yeah. way with the synthesizers and yeah and the big like think of born in the usa with the huge reverb and just that production is makes it sound the one it was from so contemporary so yeah, yeah it's it's strange and so you've got these you know the, the three beatles and trying to figure out what to do yeah, where where are, is their place in yeah. all of this? And, yeah, I think it's interesting to, that that you know. So Bruce Springsteen was successful at, at translating his music. Some of the older rockers, like you're talking about, well, the Beach Boys were successful, but yeah. uh, uh, in <laughs> retrospect, everybody is like, that's the lamest thing ever. Yeah. Same with Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they they had a mega mega hit. Yeah, they and, did. Uh, Touch, Touch of Grey, mm-hmm. but that's a lot of people's least favorite kind of uh, yeah. Grateful Dead era. So uh, the the older generation of sort of '60s uh, rockers, a lot of them had just kind of disappeared and yeah. didn't know what to do, and they're they they weren't getting signed, and right. you know it's the '80s are their lean period. Yeah. And I think uh, the '80s are a lean period of a lot of these Beatles. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, but there is definitely activity in 1984 for uh, uh, each of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, <laughs> starting with what what we uh, opened uh, the show with, there, uh, "No More Lonely Nights," uh, and uh, "Give My Regards to Broad Street." Yeah. So, uh, "No More Lonely Nights" a hit. Uh, the single reaching uh, number six in the U.S. and number two. In the UK. Oh, I didn't uh, know it did that well. That's, I, mean, yeah, I knew did, it was big, but that's pretty big. Top 10. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, pretty pretty sizable hit uh, for Paul there, but it's attached to this film. Yes, yes. What's Which, your take on this film? You've watched the whole thing, right? 
about 20 years ago. Yeah, and I've only <laughs> haven't seen it since. Misguided in a lot of ways. I again, it goes back to this theme of floundering around. So Paul comes up with a an idea for a movie with a really flimsy plot and then decides to re-record a bunch of his hits and for no great purpose and not yeah. not very well either. I was I was listening to I, uh, all of give my regards to broad street the cd the other day and it just i just kept saying why and this doesn't yeah. add anything at all it 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 is song for song worse versions of each of the songs yes yes that's that's the biggest problem here mm-hmm. number one had this been a movie where he's like <clears throat> You know whatever the loose plot of it is. Yeah. I think I think uh, Roger Ebert called it as close to a non-movie as you can get because <laughs> uh, it's basically just like the tapes are lost, they do nothing, and then they find the tapes. Uh, <laughs> non-movie. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, it, it, uh, if they had been recording new music, yeah. There's two. There's Three new songs on this thing. Which no are pretty good. No More Lonely Nights. Hmm. Not Such a Bad Boy. Not a bad song. No, no. And uh, No Values, which we'll play here in just a moment. Yeah. Um, and then and then all the other songs are like either recent or a, a few very recent, like Ballroom yeah. Dancing and So Bad. Wanderlust. And, and Wanderlust. Uh, and then some good day sunshines and here there and everywheres and and yesterday yesterday and for yeah. no one mm-hmm. and and his reasoning I listened to one interview and his reasoning was well a lot of these I never got a chance to play <laughs> live so it's it's good mm. great to go and have a re-record these with the full orchestra and stuff and they all just sound it, it toothless yes weak very weak. Uh, yeah. So you already, uh, in fact, the only memorable things I remember from the movie, I remember the ballroom dancing sequence. Yeah. Uh, I remember the guys recording in the, they look like a garage or something. They were doing no values and not such a bad boy. Uh, yeah. And, and I remember Ringo and Linda in there and yeah. then painting their face white uh, for some reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for silly love songs. Silly love songs. That, that yeah. whole sequence yeah. with the weird dancing and stuff yeah. we talked about. And some other yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. So just really uh, real misfire. Weak, <laughs> yeah, weak stuff mm-hmm. uh, all over. I mean, it almost isn't because of the amount of re-recorded songs. It almost doesn't even really count in the catalog. No, no, no. Hardly anybody ever brings it up. Right. You know, we've not done an episode on it. I'm sure. <laughs> We won't, <laughs> unless we're getting oh, to episode geez. 462 and we just have yeah, to f- scrape it up. <laughs> Crumbs, yeah. <laughs> so. But it, it's, I, you know, you think of the biggest failures in the Beatles' career and you think of Magical Mystery. They tend to do, do have to do with movies in some way. Uh, you've got Magical Mystery Tour, and then for Paul, this would certainly be the worst, I think, yeah. uh, that, that he did. So. Oh, I, well, I, hearing him, and I, I watched a bizarre amount of video of uh, interviews from mm-hmm. this year of him, and his his lazy affair, like, 
Well, I don't know anything about screenwriting, but I decided to write a screenplay, and I'm sure I'm sure there's critics who are going to say that this is bad. So, yeah, and you know, a guy has been writing a screenplays for twenty years. See, had he just like got a guy? Yeah, yeah, and and wrote the screenplay for him. Maybe this could be something. So that's yeah. number one improvement. So we're fixing. We're gonna we're fix gonna fix it. <laughs> one hire a guy who's written a screenplay before. Mm-hmm. Good idea. Right. Let's start with that. <laughs> Two, yeah, get George Martin. Okay, yeah. he did that. He did that. But to re-record old old songs, no, no, not one old song. This is all new. Paul McCartney with all new music. Paul's gonna go off write his new music. He's going to work with the screenplay writer. They're going to come up with some some great uh, plot points and mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. That's going to inspire Paul. He's going to write some new songs. Yeah, it'll be great. That that we I'd be interested in, even if it's a piece of crap of as a movie. You'd probably <laughs> get some good songs out of it. Instead, uh, we've got three songs here. Uh, let's play uh, the aforementioned no. No values slash no more lonely nights. Can you explain to me why it's slash no more lonely nights? Is they're like uh, at the very end, there's like a slight musical allusion to <laughs> no more lonely nights. That's all I can get out of it. Yeah, makes no sense. So, no sense. so like so, this whole project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, here's a little no values. Yeah, so no values from uh, the Give My Regards to Broad Street. I think that's actually a pretty good tune. Uh, it's got a good sound to it. I like the guitars on there. I think Eric Stewart is playing guitar on that. And he, mm-hmm. I, I remember him in the video. Or he's in the movie. And uh, it's pretty good. So like, if we had that and then uh, No More Lonely Nights and uh, Not Such a Bad Boy, and then, you, yeah, like you said, record a bunch of new tunes, I think at least you got a good soundtrack that would sell. And, yeah, and be a lot more interesting. So, uh, we were talking before we we recorded here about no more lonely nights, and you had said that you may have liked it more back in 1984 than you do now. So, what what's your feeling on that single? Well, it's a decent song, but the production is is so 80s, and it <laughs> and it really, particularly the terrible guitar sound. <laughs> By David Gilmore. Oh uh, yeah, I love David Gilmore, but 
it really is <laughs> bad, bad, bad sounding now. It kind of sounds like it would fit on a Journey song or something along that uh, period there. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't hold up. It's like, it's that really processed kind yeah. of... I I, had, I remember when I was just starting playing guitar and stuff, and then I was like, you know, you think like, oh, I'll get the big gadget. Mm-hmm. And so I got some processor type, you know, really elect- electronic thing. And and like uh, almost every setting made your guitar sound terrible. You know? <laughs> I remember those things. <laughs> and you'd, you'd so. play it through a PV amp that also had yeah, uh, yeah. had like terrible chorus and bad yeah. sounds on it. So yeah, yeah, it just is kind of a, a that's the the draw bad thing of the eighties. Either uh, you look at it as a well that's how it was, or uh, you just kind of cringe now at some of the sounds of the drums and the guitars. But it's not a bad song, and it's it's certainly catchy, and uh, I think it's got all the good McCartney trademarks. It just has a little bit of a dated sound now. But yeah. that's pretty much all that Paul was up to, as far as I could tell. I mean, that's a lot of a lot of stuff. But uh, he he really focused a lot on "Give My Regards to Broad Street" and uh, doing that work. So yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I know. And then he kind of dropped out for a little bit and then came back with press to play and spies like us also yeah. not the, the greatest period. So, uh, did you know, uh, by the way, this is a little, uh, trivia for you that a video game based on <laughs> gift by regards to broad Street released for the Commodore 64. Oh no. <laughs> and Sinclair ZX Spectrum home computers in 1985. No so. way. <laughs> you have to go find the tapes. Oh my god. <laughs> Why what the hell could that have been? <laughs> wow, a, a serious miss on marketing there. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. So, anyway, that's Paul's contribution. Hey, hey, so- hey son, uh uh dinner time. No, no, mom, I'm, I'm trying to find the tapes. <laughs> I'm arguing with Ringo right now. He's complaining about having to play. <laughs> Trying to find the tapes. <laughs> oh, oh man. boy, real bad. So, so Your Paul, brother. this was Paul entering his, uh, to use a good word, fallow phase here. Kind of, yeah. didn't have much in the tank for a no, few years. No. Anyway, who's, um, who's up next? John Lennon. His posthumous album *Milk and Honey* came out in 1984. Uh, they had they had released that John Lennon collection uh, before that, and uh, finally uh, scraped up a few uh, a few tapes of unfinished stuff, and uh, you know it was done just like uh, the previous album, uh, where Yoko's songs were on it too. So you had. Uh, little bit of John, a little bit of Yoko. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost like Double Fantasy 2, since they uh, since it, they were outtakes or were recorded at the same time. So it has the same feel, but like you said, it's uh, unfinished, obviously. So yeah, yeah, you've got some. I think I would say equally great songs like Nobody Told Me and uh, Borrowed Time is a good tune. It just sounds unfinished. Um, well, yeah, Nobody Told Me is good. I'm Stepping Out yeah, was, stepping a, out's was a, a very tune. minor hit. Like, mm-hmm. didn't even make the top 40 kind of hit. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got I Don't Want to Face It. Mm-hmm. you got Borrowed Time. 
uh, you got Forgive Me My Little Flower Princess. Yes. And Grow Old With Me. So yeah. what do you want to hear of those, Dave? Uh, uh, well, there's, yeah, interesting tracks. Like Maybe let's go with The Borrowed Time because it's that when you hear it back in context now, it's it kind of is more meaningful that John was singing it at that particular point because he really was on Borrowed Time. I mean, we all are, but he especially yeah. was at that time. So let's uh, check that one out. When I was Dave, I, I feel like that song one it that once it gets going, it's all right. Mm-hmm. It's got kind <laughs> of a little bit of a calypso feel, or kind of a Caribbean. It sounds like steel drums or something on the back there. Yeah, and all of these songs sound like as they are the skeleton version of yeah. what if he had a chance to record the vocals better than I mean, it sounds like he's not even trying on the vocals. No, it's like first the take. guitar sound is really weak. <laughs> At the beginning, think, think, very tinny. Yeah, yeah. I remember <clears throat> when I heard this for the first time, and then seeing, reading about, because it, it was only four years after John Lennon was killed. I mean, really less than that since he was killed in December. It, it, it was still pretty shocking and sad, especially "Grow Old with Me." Even yeah. you hear that demo version from the Dakota. It's got that rhythm box on it, and like a very poor sound quality, but so heartfelt and just really touching uh, way to end the album. I think that was the last Lennon tune on the album. And it, it was just, uh, still to this day, you think of uh, what a tragedy. It's just the most ridiculous thing that could have happened. And, uh, and still, yeah. it's still, still just like uh, rough to think about. Yeah, but, uh, very. The, and the album, you know, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. It's not, uh, it, it, Whatever you think about Yoko, this isn't her best collection of songs. No. Uh, so that sort of doesn't even, doesn't help, doesn't add no. to the album no. too much. And then nobody told me, uh, uh, hands down, uh, uh, the best posthumous release song. Yes. I'm Stepping Out's all right. And the mm-hmm. rest of it's, uh, like you said, there's some poignancy here and there. But uh, 
overall, it's nothing that I ever get even close to, you know, spinning no. too much. So. No, because they still, like we've been saying, they, just, they sound like demos, and there's, it's still, it's just not quite quite there yet. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, Double Fantasy was clearly much more produced and more of a finished product since it was. So. Yeah. So, but those the, those were out, and yeah. uh, that was uh, the '84. Uh, Nobody told me came out in January. Mm-hmm. Stepping out was released in July as singles. Broad time, I think, was a single in like March or something. Yeah. Dave, uh, another linen. Yes. A, a very significant. Yes. Uh, release. It really opened the eyes. Uh, of everyone, the debut studio album by singer-songwriter Julian Lennon. You're holding up your vinyl, yes. original vinyl copy of it. Yes, I bought this probably maybe a year after it came out or very close after it came out. I have my original vinyl, 1984 Charisma Records, a Warner Communications company. And uh, it's it was very striking. It, it's still... I think a lot of the there's some filler tunes on here, but I think it does hold up pretty well. And at the time, everyone just kept talking about how how much he sounded like John, how much he looked like John, and he was like the second coming of John in some ways. Yeah, and I, he does obviously. His voice is very reminiscent. But you know, you can definitely tell the family genes, and he looks like him uh, with '80s gear. And he did have some hits, including uh, Valat, which is the title track, which is still a pretty good tune. Yeah, Valat uh, hit uh, a top 10 single in, on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Uh, it was a single in 85, but okay. the album had come out in 84. We're going to listen to this one, uh, another top 10 hit in the U.K. and the U.S., uh, released in September of 1984. And that is Too Late for Goodbyes. Like good for goodbyes there, uh, Julian Lennon. Uh, I want to mention uh, Justin Clayton is on this album, and I think a few other of uh, Julian Lennon's album. Justin Clayton, uh, English guitarist and singer, 
1999, he uh, had his own solo album, Limb. Uh, I implore anyone listening, please go find Justin Clayton Limb. It's a, it's one of the lost gems of history. Hmm. It's just a really t- fantastic album. And uh, uh, unfortunate that that's his only album. I don't know. I don't <laughs> yeah. know why. I, obviously, it wasn't that popular. But yeah. uh, uh, I like Justin Clayton a lot. I like that album, Limb. Mm-hmm. Any other uh, people of note on, uh, on playing on this album? Yeah, there's a lot of people on this album. So it was produced by Phil Ramone, who was known for uh, working with Billy Joel and I think the Police, or at least Billy Joel was. I know was most famous probably. Uh, Yes, you have uh, Steve Holly, the former Wings drummer, is on here. You've got uh, John Faddis, Michael Brecker, Ronnie Cooper. These are all really great horn players who are from the jazz and crossover world. Uh, Toots Thielman's on the harmonica on that tune. It was another mm-hmm. famous jazzer. Uh, so he really pulled out all the stops for this, and that may have been part of the problem. I, I was just thinking, this is one of the first albums that you can think of of where you had a child of a famous 60s act uh, yeah. uh, who went out on, in this case, went out on his own. Uh, later, A couple of years later, you'd get Wilson Phillips and some of those uh, late 80s things. <laughs> yeah. But uh, this is really one of the first ones, and, and I felt like, I felt that, Julian was unfairly treated, of course, because he, he was compared to his father immediately. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's you can't. Uh, well, he looks. That's yeah. Similar. That's the problem, and sounds like him. Yeah. Sounds similar. Sounds like like John with a much weaker voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, an issue. Yeah. And the song a lot even uh, more so sounds like it's almost playing a little tribute to. Yeah. Yeah. John, uh, just uh, some of the uh, music in it sounds very Beatley. Mm-hmm. You know? So, so I think I, but I think I felt like at the time, like, oh, this is gonna be great. Yeah, like he's gonna have a big career. And even though uh, John Lennon's not around anymore, at least we got Julian Lennon. We can uh, uh, expect great things from him in the future i think you would have you would have placed a bet on a stock rising yes yes after Vlad, yeah. and, and then it did not rise any further no he had the um, sophomore slump next... problem with his next album i think had a, a minor hit or two on it and then didn't secret value of daydreaming secret... yeah That's right really yeah. didn't do that much and then he sort of dropped off after that and became more of a a fan's favorite so yeah yeah. But he's still out there. He's still making music. Uh, uh, yeah. Some rumors of uh, some new music from him coming out uh, at some point. Yeah, so. that's true. That's true. <laughs> so uh, it is, but at that time it was a big, you know, given what had just happened to John, it was pretty exciting to see Julian and you could see the hope again, kind of the, the possibilities were exciting at that time. Yeah. So. Yeah, so you've got John, George, or John, Paul, and Julian, and then the other two Beatles. It's kind of a hodgepodge of stuff, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, let's let's talk. We got a lot actually to talk about with Ringo Starr uh, mm. out of this year. In fact, we're gonna we're gonna hit on three things here. Uh, the first of which, Ringo hosted 
1984. Now, the 1984 cast of Saturday Night Live was this... They thought this was going to be the last year of SNL. Oh, really? Uh, the the original <laughs> cast had gone away, and then there were a few years in the weeds where they, they sort of had... They had... Uh, um, Joe Piscopo, and oh, they, yeah. had, they had Eddie Murphy, <laughs> mm-hmm. oh yeah, and, and uh, some people like that. But those people had left the show. Uh, so in 1984, they were like, "Let's get some, let's get some all stars back here." So they brought in Billy Crystal, and they brought in Martin Short, and, and uh, it was a shortened year because there ended up being a strike. So there was a, like not a full year of SNL. But that year was like one of the best years, really, mm-hmm. of SNL. And then a few years later, they, it would come back to prominence with Dana Carvey and all those kind of guys, and would uh, you know, a, a spoiler alert, still on the air. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so this weird kind of year here, though, with Billy Crystal being the big, the big headline star of the of the group, and they had this uh, episode with him uh, and Ringo Starr. So let's. Let's uh, uh, hear the promo for the episode, and then we'll talk just a little bit about uh, some of the, some of the uh, highlights of it. There's one particular highlight right at the beginning of the episode, so here we go. Ringo Starr here. I'm hosting Saturday Night Live. I'm a bit nervous, but I'll get by with a little help from my friends. All you got to do is act naturally. So that's a, a short little promo there where he's like, act natu- I'm going to act naturally. <laughs> um, now, uh, one of the sketches right at the beginning of the episode was an auction. Yes, I remember they this had, one. They had a Ringo Starr up for auction. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> he was a Beatle, an, an actual original Beatle here. <laughs> and wasn't Martin <laughs> Short the host of it? Or Yeah. yeah. And nobody's bidding. Nobody's <laughs> like... People are like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> so, was that? Did you get? Were you able to watch the whole show or some of the other no, skits? No, you or, can't find. Yeah. You can't right now. They uh, at one point all of these were on uh, CISO, which was a, a hardly anybody had it, and they and they had uh, it was run by NBC, and it was all comedy, and they had every single SNL. Hmm. So you could get you could get these '80s ones, but you know they you just can't get you one. They've never come out on video. The the no. early '80s stuff barely seen any kind of like video release, uh, partially because these years were the years without Lorne Michaels. Mm-hmm. So he's like, who cares about these years? Yeah, <laughs> the forgotten years. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, yeah. So. Yeah, but pretty. yeah, he he hosted SNL. So yes, was, and the musical was, act, the musical act was Herbie Hancock playing a keytar. It looks like uh, and really funking it out with his big hit from Future Shock on the album or the songs called Rocket. So yeah, yeah, pretty exciting. Uh, there. If you if you do find this and watch it, you there will be a couple things that stand out now in this era. That kind of you scratch your head out. One is in his opening monologue, it's him and uh, Billy Crystal playing Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, <laughs> which at the time was all right, but yeah. now it's like, oh, brother. Yeah, yeah. And and then there's a second sketch that's like in set in the war, 
and uh, Billy Crystal plays an uh, like an Asian guy, like oh, Asian. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. there's a little too much uh, racial f- blackface and racial. It hasn't <laughs> worn well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> By too much, I mean Eddie is too much. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. So anyway, so that doesn't stand the test of time. Second, July fourth, my birthday. Your birthday. Five, like half a million fans around the Washington Monument there to see a lot of musical acts, including the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys hosting this big event. There's some video here I'm going to play with Ringo Starr. They introduce Ringo Starr, and then they'll play a, a Beatles song that we're all familiar with. So let's let's play it here. Yeah, so that back in the USSR, Dave. Which is a funny song, you know why? For Ringo to be playing on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah <'cause> he... <laughs> I guess he always wanted to play on it because he didn't on the White Album. So yeah, uh, here you go. Here's his chance. Got to his play. chance. Yeah, and then after they play back in the USSR, I think they do a very extended version of Good Vibrations that uh, they jam for a while on it with everybody in sight on stage. Yeah. But the quote I read from uh, some of the comments about this is that Ringo said in later in an interview he didn't even remember that he was there or that he played. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how does he look on that performance? Well, he looks ragged. He looks <laughs> He looks maybe like he's had a few. And, you know, it's the 4th of July and a loose yeah. performance and stuff, and he's guesting, so right. can't really like rake him over the coals for that i can rake him over the coals though for looking terrible <laughs> and very hungover in every single interview from this year for promotions for a kid's thing yes yes <laughs> that was and that terrible kid's thing that kid's thing okay for, first let's just say thomas and thomas and friends uh, debuted in 1984 and is a great thing and Ringo does a great job in it let's mm-hmm. hear a little uh, from episode one of Thomas and friends Thomas gets tricked we'll just hear a little sampler here Thomas is a tank engine who lives at a big station on the island of Sodor he's a cheeky little engine with six small wheels a short stumpy funnel, a short stumpy boiler, and a short stumpy dome. He's a fussy little engine too, always pulling coaches about ready for the big engines to take on long journeys. 
So there's a little Thomas and Friends. Uh, Thomas gets tricked. Well, what do you think about him doing Thomas and Friends? Okay. I think it's a perfect fit. You know, it's a uh, Ringo always had an affection for kids. Uh, he had or for his own kids, but also for you know singing for kids and children. Yellow Submarine, Octopus's Garden, all of his songs have a real affection for uh, for kids. And so I think this is a good fit. It makes sense. His voice works well. He seems to be into it. And uh, he he, ma- he milked that for quite a while with the Thomas and the tank engine and uh, kept going with it. So it seemed like a good match. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, he does all these, you know, Thomas comes out and they want to promote it. So they send him around with uh, uh, the author of Thomas and <laughs> Who looks like he's about 150 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so they there's particularly this one interview with him on TV AM from yeah. 1984. He's wearing sunglasses and he's just like very haggard. And <laughs> there's one of the interviews he like fakes being asleep because it's like, oh, it's so early. Ugh. And everybody kind of laughs it off, but it's very uncomfortable. I don't yeah. know if you, you read thought, it the same way. Yeah, I thought so. He he couldn't really, he was not giving good answers either. He's definitely kind of out of it. So, we we. I mean, we just have to say um, uh, this is a bad period for Ringo. I yeah. mean, uh, uh, before he gets clean, I think, you know, he had such a terrible success with unsuccess uh with stop and smell the roses and mm-hmm. then this old wave didn't even get released really yeah, yeah so it just was like a really not good for his musical career period and you know he's he's still drinking and he's still just kind of like not not having a good no. not having a good time thankfully he'd go to rehab he'd get he'd get sort of straightened out and then he'd turn change his career to being a uh as we said in the defending ringo episode from uh, a couple of years ago uh, just really a uh, great thing that he put together this all-star tribute yeah. band and kind of resurrected the careers of like some you know the guy from asia and like, <laughs> some, some of some of those guys who don't have anywhere to go todd Rundgren. yeah and, yeah yeah like that and, that was uh, really the big turning point i think for him so it's just it's adrift at this point clearly yeah. having a lot of uh, a lot of problems so uh but yeah at least he at least he was out there compared to george who was hardly yeah, speak around of a drift speak of a drift <laughs> yeah, so. well and this is I, I i like to refer to this as he is gone tropo yeah this whole, you know yes. he went tropo and then he stayed tropo for quite a while yeah yeah uh, all the way until uh his his big comeback in uh 87 yeah with, with but, our good friend Jeff Lynn. But if you take out a, a uh, magnifying glass <laughs> and you look around, uh, you can find uh, one performance from George Harrison. Now, George was uh, pals with Ian Pace and the late keyboardist John Lord, from both from Deep Purple. And uh, Deep Purple was going to be playing in Australia Sydney, Australia, in uh, December of 1984, and uh, who shows up <laughs> on stage? But uh, George Harrison. They they don't even announce him as George Harrison. They announce him as like uh, 
Arnold Grove from Liverpool. <laughs> uh, but there is a video out there, and we'll play you a little of it, of Deep Purple featuring George Harrison playing Lucille. Yeah, so pretty decent guitar solo from uh, George Harrison playing with uh, Dave is a huge, huge, huge <laughs> Deep Purple fan, I assume. Uh, I can name a total of one song, uh, "Smoke on the Water." Right? That's the <laughs> that's the only song I know. So, well, I was uh, I was uh, looking at this article that says how George Harrison ended up on stage with Deep Purple. This is from UltimateClassicRock.com, and then if you scroll down, it says. Deep Purple albums ranked, and then it's twenty-one albums. But really, that was like twenty-one, 21 albums. Deep Purple albums. Holy crap! Wow, we got I've a lot listened, of listening to do. I've listened to one, <laughs> which is the one with Smoke on the Water on it, and I probably skipped everything with Smoke <laughs> yeah, on the Water. Exactly. We got a lot of listening to do here this weekend. Yeah. So wow, yeah. So yeah, and not... the album Machine Head, Smoke on the Water. Oh, all right, nineteen seventy-two. So oh boy, wow. Yeah, not a big Deep Purple guy, I assume, and no, neither am I. No. Neither am I. No, kind of a fun track, obviously just a blues and a little Richard tune and not uh not too uh exciting, but they were having a good time on stage and George sounds good, so uh, it's yeah. nice to see him up there and at least he got out and played a little bit. Yeah. So that's what everybody was doing, but yeah. uh Dave we'd we'd be remiss if we didn't mention what I think to be Maybe uh, for uh, guys like me and you, one of the most one of the most uh, formidable things that happened in 1984, and that is the release of the Complete Beatles. Yes, this movie, home video. Yeah, this movie it still holds up well, and uh, t- for some odd reason, it's never been really re-released. I don't know what it, what, what happened, but. Uh, well, I think what happened is this: the rights are owned now by Paul McCartney. Oh. He bought the rights for it so that he could use some of it in 
the anthology. Aha, okay. Is what I've heard. Okay. And so, uh, you know, it it sort of came out a little bit in 82, but uh, 84 is the big, 84 is the big seminal moment because that's when it comes out on VHS. Yes, which is how we all saw it. And I don't know about you, but I might have rented this like three, four times. I did. I did. And then when I could buy it, I bought it on VHS. And I think you and I could probably quote lines from it because it, I, I, it, it was recorded and filmed at a time when there were all these people were still alive, and so and still doing stuff. So you had Phil Collins in there. I remember Marianne Faithful, uh, Roger McGuinn of the Birds, uh, just all these big name people. George Martin, uh, Derek Taylor, I think was in there. Yeah, and I just remember Alan, it started out Alan with, Williams. Yeah, Alan Williams, right. And, uh, and of course, the narration from Malcolm McDowell yes, was just like, fantastic. Fantastic. So it's it it was very important for uh, young Beatle fans at that time to to have something like that that told the story, but with principals and people who were there. I did dig up a little sampler here. This is uh, Malcolm McDowell, and he's talking about the. Basically, it's the introduction in the film of George Martin, and then we'll hear what George Martin thought of uh, the. Beatles when they first heard them. George Martin was as unlikely a producer for a rock and roll group as Brian Epstein was a manager. Although trained as a classical musician, he'd been producing eccentric comedy records at Parlophone, a specialty label owned by EMI. Ever on the alert for new ideas, Martin was intrigued by the demo Brian played. The music wasn't frightfully original. There were no great songs there. It was just the sound was interesting. I arranged a, a recording test with them in Abbey Road, number three studio, which meant I was going to spend a couple of hours with them finding out what they could do. They had a very, very funny version of Please Please Me, which was rather slow. They did have Love Me Do. Um, weird things like Fat Swallows, Your Feet's Too Big, or Till There Was You. I got them to sing lots of different things to find out which voice was good. I was looking for the Cliff Richard or the Elvis Presley or the Tommy Steele, saying, now, is Paul going to be the main one or is John going to be the main one? And George, well, he's obviously not got such a good voice as the other two. And then it suddenly hit me right between the eyes. Why the hell should I find a solo singer? Why not just have a lot of them as they are? It wasn't their music that sold them to me. It was their charm. They were very charming people. Oh, it's so pretty good. good clip there. That's huh? a great clip, and oh, you know, this makes me want to watch the complete Beatles. Me again. too. I wish we could get a. We're never going to get a review. No, no, oh. I doubt it. it. I'm sure someone's probably dubbed it onto a DVD somewhere. You could probably get one on eBay, but it's it's unfortunate because it is good, and it's it's also I don't know who did who made the movie. I'd have to go back and look at it, but it, it's not as biased as the. Beatles anthology is going to be because they're yeah. the anthology is made by them so they're telling their own story but this is a different this is not connected exactly well just in that clip yeah, George right. Martin's like ah, that was crap yeah that, that is no good yeah George obviously wasn't as good as the other two right and that yes so. then you'd hear him 10 years later in the anthology and he's a little bit less critical uh, as as he was there the the VHS release of the Complete Beatles to me is like a, a real real important moment in our lives because it's sort of like oh we got we got the full picture yep yep you know we didn't live through it 
we got the full picture though from the complete Beatles, and then you know, obviously the anthology later. Yeah. At some point, the anthology will pop up, and we'll do a big long. I've always wanted no, to do. We will. Yeah. You know, there's so much to tackle with the anthology though. There's yeah. the documentary. There's the music. There's you know three double albums. Yeah, the big the book. book. Yeah. Oh yeah, I got the big book looking at me right over there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, but the complete Beatles, and uh, also I saw on. Uh, uh, you know, it came out on VHS Betamax CED. <laughs> I don't even know what CED is. I don't either. And Laserdisc. Oh, I had Laserdisc. Laser I remember those things. They were like about as big as a record. They were, yeah. Yeah. So, the 82 is when it came out on Laserdisc. But, okay. uh, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. Complete yeah. Beatles. Excellent. And then also in 1984 came out the early tapes of the Beatles, which is Tony Sheridan. <laughs> uh, with the Beatles backing them up, and it's hard to even listen to. <laughs> Who cares, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Mike Bonnie, you big Mike Bonnie guy. <laughs> no, I skipped that. You one. Like uh, you like the Tony Sheridan, Kansas City over the. <laughs> no, I'll pass on that one. Thanks. <laughs> uh, ain't she sweet? As uh, yeah, John Lennon vocal, and there is "Cry for a Shadow." Is yeah, there's a it, few, but, yeah. but there is not good sound, and it's just. Not yeah, good. Rough. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, looking back now at this this odd year of 1984, uh, how do you rate the Beatles and what they were doing at that time? Did they, like, in terms of being out of touch or or completely trying, overcompensating or just lost? Or, yeah, how do you wrap yeah, it's it up? A, it's a hard year. It's a rough yeah. year. I, yeah, so well, one thing we should have said at the beginning is this will be something we do we revisit and yeah. pick a random year in the Beatles' life and and just uh, get a snapshot of where everybody was at and what everybody was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is uh, uh, there were two releases, you know, obviously, but from uh, John and from Paul, but a uh, pretty weak year and yeah. one of one of Paul's weakest releases. Yeah. Uh, a flop of a movie. <laughs> uh, the the worst John Lennon album, just by its nature, you know. Yeah, since he wasn't able uh, to do much with it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then Julian, you know, uh, it's nice to have a little Julian in there. But uh, I think Julian might be the highlight of all Beatle-related yeah. items for 1984. Sure, because uh, it's yeah, at least it it was well done and some good stuff on there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, kind of a rough, kind of a rough year. But uh, it's fun to kind of look and just be like, well, we've never really talked. And like, what, what, no one would even think to think, uh, what was the Beatles doing in 1984? No, yeah. no, <laughs> no. And it's all this. Uh, you know, you have these momentous events in the Beatles' history, and clearly Lennon's death was one of the biggest. And trying to see how do they pick up the pieces, and when the world is completely changing musically around them, and as we can see, it's not very successful, and it would take a few more years to come to get out of that hole and come back to where they, you know, McCartney with Flowers in the Dirt, and as you said, Ringo with the All Star Band, and George with Cloud Nine. So yeah. the end of the eighties were were really good. They would start to come out of it in the late eighties, and I think because they would all start to embrace being Beatles, yes, and start to put. A lot of Beatles music in there, mm-hmm. <laughs> in their tours, and start to go on tour as Beatles 
bands, you know, yeah. like, hey, we're the Beatles. We were the Beatles. Let's 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 not try to run away from it. Right. By the end of the 80s, they finally have stopped running away from it. Well, Paul, to some extent, <laughs> in this release, is not running away from it, but doing it very poorly. Yeah, <laughs> right, well, right. Uh, uh, but that's for other reasons, you know. Yeah. It's because, like, who needs it in a movie? Yeah. But yeah, I think it, by the end of the eighties, we'd we'd have we'd see them kind of all being a lot more successful mm-hmm. and uh, being able to build on that for the future. Yeah, definitely. So this has been a lot of fun to look at nineteen eighty four, and for a good reason, not for the world reason right now, uh, but for yeah. for musical reasons here. And what uh, should we go out with here for to close out our look at nineteen eighty four? Well, we had we uh, to play out the episode. <laughs> I think we got to do the play out version of No More Lonely Nights. Uh, of course, you can uh, follow us on Facebook, uh, join our fa- uh, like us on Facebook. We'll update that uh, a lot. <laughs> follow us on Twitter at at I've Got a Beatles. Follow me on Twitter at at Chris D Bragg. I post a song of the night unrelated to the Beatles every day. Uh, so you can find some gems um, mixed in there, uh, and uh, you know uh, we'll be back with uh, another episode very soon. But here's my <laughs> I, can, I can hardly wait for this. Uh, four notches, number eight. <laughs> There's no more lonely nights to play out. <laughs>